Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Uh, Today, I am here, just myself, Bridger, with uh, our special guest, David Archer. Hi, David. Hello, Bridger. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, I'm very excited. Uh, We got to talk a little bit before um, the podcast started, and we had many different points of uh, just, it felt like the episode wanted to start right there. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm glad that we uh, we have some very fruitful discussion um, today, but I didn't know, uh, David, if you wanted to go ahead and introduce yourself uh, to the listeners, I find that that's kind of more personable than me trying to tell them who you are in front of you. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, sure. Okay. I could do a little autobiographical yeah. introduction. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Hello, everyone. My name is David Archer. Uh, I'm an anti-racist psychotherapist from Montreal, Canada, and also is that uh, I'm a person who is very fascinated with the idea that people are able to heal, and I'm very, like, uh, I'm a person that I, I love the technology that we use, our EMDR therapy, our memory reconsolidation-based therapies, and for me, my job as a therapist is just to provide a context for people to heal and also to recognize their awesomeness. As a therapist, I feel that our greatest teachers are not just the workshops, are not just the professors we come across, but the beautiful miracle of healing that every client uh, presents to us. And although it is really challenging because especially in this time of COVID that many of us might've felt feelings of discouragement uh, many of us are adapting to, you know, the new normals. I feel like we go through a new variant every week. By the end of the, the year, we're going to know the whole Greek alphabet. But yeah. still, <laughs> is that uh, I'm a person who believes in the ability for all people to be able to overcome their suffering, for all people to transmute their suffering into wisdom. And for me, it's uh, it's a joy to uh, to be here and looking forward again to the discussion and seeing. Uh, yeah. yeah, where the conversation takes us. Yeah, in in some of that language, which I, I love so many of the things that you just said, um, I hear a lot of story behind, you know, like there's trails of breadcrumbs behind each of those um, kind of ways that you're choosing to identify. And I think that would be a great place to maybe start of how did you come to be a therapist with this, with this outlook? Um, yeah, so, so I was raised in a town that was called Chattagee, Quebec. And when I was raised in this area, um, it was around the time that 
Quebec was deciding whether it wanted to separate from the entire country. I was raised around the time where there was this event called Oka Crisis, where the, the land of the indigenous people was kind of being taken by people who were non-indigenous. So there were other people in Ganawage, which is the native community that was close to my hometown, where they would protest in solidarity, defending their brothers and sisters in uh, Ganasataga and Agwasasne also. Like the native communities, they, they were sticking together and, and they saw that an injustice was taking place. And I saw that the response that my country had was to bring uh, tanks into my town. Many people have probably never even heard of these types of stories because uh, as I was telling uh, to Bridger before is that uh, as Canadians, we, we watch a lot of American news. Many Americans don't know about our news. But to see that there was this intense response uh, to people asserting their, their rights, it was just an interesting introduction for me, is that immediately I had to be aware of me being English, being Anglophone, uh, knowing that there are people who are French, that they're Francophone, knowing that I was Black, that there were people who were white, that there are people who were indigenous, people who were Mohawk. And I feel that it wasn't so much as me just deciding that I was going to be an anti-racist psychotherapist. It's just that the circumstances decided it for me. I yeah. feel that for anyone who wanted to, for me, I've always wanted to understand why is it that suffering takes place? Because I was always concerned with how is it that healing takes place? And I've always been trying to understand why is it that my darker skin complexion means that I'm not supposed to be a therapist? Why is it that uh, people who are white, that they would have privileges that would be denied for me? And so as a person who is a, a proud Jamaican, uh, uh, I guess, Black Jamaican, African Canadian, I got to put all my whole, because <laughs> yeah. without my upbringing, without like having my family, my mother, my brothers, um, you know, my whole family, my like everyone who believed in us, then I wouldn't be in this place today. So I'm a product of everything that was around me. Yeah. Yeah. And I see in that some of the, maybe some of the pieces that drew you to EMDR um, as AIP has, you know, some very um, strong language around some of the elements you're thinking or that you're describing here that we are you know, so much of the present moment is found in the past and that all added together, just as you said, it wasn't so much that you chose to be the therapist you are with the dispositions you have, but that you're, you know, you were decided <laughs> by your oh, yes. past. Yes, definitely. And also because many of us are impacted by our negative cognitions. Many of us are impacted by our small T traumas, our large T traumas. But underlying the difficulties that we go through are, of course, the positive cognitions, the, the beliefs that we have value in the world, the belief that, uh, that we are deserving of love. And again, this, this isn't always emphasized because we come from an individualist society here um, in Canada, America. We're North Americans. It's a Western, Western kind of thing. But I feel that some of the best protective factors are coming from a family where you feel loved, where you feel like, you know, and even 
if it's not even a family of origin, but a family of choice where you can feel that your experience is validated. And so I was blessed to, uh, to know people uh, that cared about me. And so my job is just to return the favor. It's just to, as much as there were people who helped me, it's for me to help others and to help them to help others as well. Yeah. Before we started this episode, um, you know, we were talking about why EMDR and what is, you know, EMDR doing with memory reconsolidation and that this isn't just, you know, EMDR is not a one-stop shop um, for, for, for a lot of this, this work that you're talking about being so authentic to who you are. And so how did you come to EMDR? Why, why EMDR? Yeah, so I think I came to EMDR like how many other people did, is that I realized some things were not working. <laughs> All right, I got to find out how to make this thing work. Uh, like for me, I've, I was always interested in uh, mindfulness meditation. I was always interested in the idea that, uh, that within the individual, there is suffering, but also within the individual is resilience. That within the individual, there is pain but also within the individual is this ability to transcend this or to, to get in touch with something that's much greater than them. And I remember working as an addictions counselor and trying to get people to just stay mindful. They were great at being mindful in my office, but then when they'd go home, they would use substances. <laughs> and I was like, why are you not using? This is incongruent. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't, they were like, they didn't use the breathing technique because they were busy. <laughs> uh, doing something else and so then i was interested in how would we be able to make it so that the benefit of the mindfulness meditation that it could kind of happen uh in the session and kind of keep throughout time and so i started to find a bunch of different types of uh therapies that that related to acupressure points emotional freedom technique i thought was an awesome thing because I was like, what is this all about? Is that, you know, <laughs> the person doesn't have to talk about their issue. Like, you know, like we just tap and things happen like this. And then I realized that, you know, uh, EFT was helpful for me as an introduction. And it did help people to cope with some of their, um, some of the urges that would take place. But I needed something that was a bit more robust in terms of targeting the initial uh, impetus for for the addiction for the substance abuse mm. so because I was working in a native community I also saw that I wanted to have an approach that wasn't just going to come from this white supremacist perspective that was like me as the therapist is the expert and they're the novice and they need yeah. to, to listen to me because the the individual in the in uh, the native community they expect that from a non-native, that the non-native is going to come and try to colonize them with, with their expertise and blah, 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 and all their fake privilege. So mm. I wanted to try to see if it were possible to, to find an approach that related to mindfulness, that related to reprocessing or changing the experience of the suffering. And so that was what led me to EMDR. Is, yeah. And working in that community helped me to understand that it was not just the individual that was at fault for the substance abuse issue. Sometimes it was their family of origin. Sometimes it was the experiences that, that their parents went through. And so then it was impossible for me to be a person who was an addictions counselor hmm. and an EMDR therapist. And with this, this background, 
for me to not also see that there were patterns outside of the individual, outside of the family, and some that in, that related to the colonization of the country itself. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And so EMDR therapy taught me that there were ways that you could install the resource, even the RDI, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, I, I speaking to Andrew Weeds the other day and I just told him that uh, the RDI changed my life. Resource yeah. development installation, this thing, man. I mean, that you could help a person to just to tune into their infinite creativity and see the yeah. beauty of themselves in a session. Like it was just, it's such a beautiful thing. It's been helping yes. a lot of my clients. I so, yes, I so, oh, absolutely. I, I so appreciate your, um, what I'm feeling is just such a uh, kind of consistent thread through the modalities that you found yourself appreciating and the kind of, you know, place that they found in you when you were faced with this, you know, this white supremacist inborn type of psychotherapy where I'm the, you know, power coming to you to say how you should change and you should change in the way that I see fit and and demonstrate it through the measures that I've created. But each of these techniques, the mindfulness, the emotion freedom technique, EMDR is all built around this waking up of the person's inborn goodness and their natural, you know, bend towards healing, their ability to heal with what is true to them, not as what is true to anyone else. Yeah, it's because there's some times where I'd even do like a mindful breathing exercise with my clients, which I speak about in the book, Black Meditation. And um, sometimes they breathe, so they breathe in specific colors, they breathe in specific um, uh, sensory like, you know, there's visual elements, there's auditory elements and all of this. And like, sometimes they'll just say, you know, yeah, I breathed in like a, a blue ocean. And, and then after I'll tell them <laughs> at the end, I'll say, you know what? Never in a million years would I have been able to tell you that you're going to recover by inhaling a blue ocean through a meditation. And they start laughing. Well, here you because, are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's because we don't always know the solution to our suffering. But, yeah. but I believe that with a bit of patience and a bit of creativity, everyone is capable of, uh, of being able to recover. And so this is yeah. why I love RDI as well, is because you never know what's going to come up. And sometimes it can help them to be able to, to deal with the, with the stresses that, that, yeah. that, that there's no words that the therapist could have said that would lead them to that, to that conclusion at the end. So it's a, it's yeah. a beautiful thing. We talk about, um, you know, resource just the concept of resources from a neurobiological perspective and um in you know thinking about what typically people come away from their basic training with is not (laughs) the freedom and you know invitation to be creative with your clients it's you know here's the prescriptive resources that are going to work and you should you know seek to install these and if you're from a complex trauma background you're going to install them first uh, just do all three, do the, do the nurture, do the protective and do the, you know, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, no, nah, it's a bit more. Well, the thing is that I think it's a bit more complex, but it's, it's also simple as well. There's ways of being able to do resourcing that I think are a bit more intuitive. And yeah. a lot of that just comes from us, like decentering this idea that we need to, to do EMDR. Like it's like, it's a cookbook or like a it's recipe a book or something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, 
is that um, I, if I can if I can segue for a quick uh, second, I think yeah. one of the main problems that happened with psychotherapy is that uh, uh, we tried to force it to be. Uh, we tried to emphasize the elements that were scientific instead of the elements that were artistic. Because yeah. there's a lot of beauty that can come up when the therapist themselves is, uh, it's like the client can only go to where the therapist is comfortable going. So yeah. if the therapist themselves has a bit of experience and also the freedom to try out new things, the client also gets that as well. But when we're just like, okay, you need one of these, okay, check. We need another one, okay, check then um, it loses some of the dynamism or the dynamic aspect of the, uh, you know, like as if it doesn't flow as much as a conversation. Yeah. So of course it is like a hundred percent true. Our clients need to be resourced. Uh, there's a great amount of creativity that comes up when the client sees that you're not going to judge them for the resource. I've had clients uh, in the past year bring up uh, ancestors but that's because I talk about this. If they have a spiritual faith or cultural practice, I talk about this. And there's, again, there's nothing that the therapist can say that's going to be able to match with grandma coming up being like, yo, everything's good. Like there's yeah, nothing okay. the therapist can really say. Like, no, there's, so this is why uh, this is, uh, if we use it in, in, you know, from an anti-racist uh, psychotherapy perspective, um, we kind of like decenter the ego of therapists. That, the, that it's not so much about what uh, about who we are and like how how like our educational background. It's more about the opportunity of uh, for growth in uh, the client. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it is absolutely one of the uh, more recent, just mind blowing experiences I've had with a client from an RDI perspective. Uh, was the planet or X planet, I guess, Pluto um, was the, was the resource and they connected with the, even the process of the planet being, you know, kind of exiled from our, at, from our science education standpoint. And so they would hug the planet Pluto in their mind as they were sitting with me and found such celestial companionship. Uh, with this, you know, this kind of uh, just floating ball of mass <laughs> in the universe. Yeah. So it's so interesting because it's like they imagine it, but the body responds as if it's taking place. Like they imagine it's just interesting. Like when I explain to people about recovering from trauma, that in a way it's that we're helping ourselves, we're, in a way, it's that we're rescuing ourselves from the past. It's such a beautiful thing when you can hear a person reprocess the trauma and be like, I went back in the past and I protected her now. Or now it's like I had uh, someone was like, uh, you know, I, I gave my younger self a bunny rabbit and like it made her smile and she feels safe. And I told her she could keep the bunny rabbit. And it's like then <laughs> all of a sudden the stress reduces, all of a sudden the breathing returns. So I believe that uh, that. The possibilities are endless. endless. And of course, yeah. it, you know, it takes like a skillful application and all that, but I've just seen so many beautiful things. Yeah. One of the, um, this is shifting a little bit because I feel like we could just go on and on and on about that because I'm so passionate also about that. But, um, you know, your background, even just from a professional standpoint, you, you're a social worker, but you're also a marriage and family therapist as well. 
And what I hear in that uh, is so just complementary of the anti-racist perspective because it gives you that systemic focus, whether it be a family systems or it gives you a larger contextualized systemic perspective. And one of the questions I'm, I'm hoping you'll give some insight into is what does it mean then for us to have or to, to desire an anti-racist psychotherapeutic stand like perspective? What is actually the point of emphasis there? Why anti-racist psychotherapy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's because um, many white people, uh, they, they don't know that they have a race, but actually they do. It's, like it's completely <laughs> unconscious to them. Uh, for me as a black person, it's like when you're learning about therapy in the university, they're always teaching about working interracially. <laughs> like they're always teaching you about how to work with a white person. Yeah. And so the thing is that I, I always had to have an awareness of race when I was learning about therapy. Mm. And for me, I realized that for many white people having an awareness of race, is that they'd also need to have an anti-racist perspective. Because the thing is that uh, I think it was about the 80s that they developed the ideas of cultural competence and the yeah. idea that if you just, we take a few courses about being a native, about being a black person, then, then you know it all, then you know the black person and you know, you know these people. Yeah. And um, it just doesn't pan out that way. There's never been a time when I was like trying to go and see a therapist myself and I was like, you know, I hope they I hope this white therapist took that university class. That and I, they're like, competent no, it's not, in, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not the course. It's not what's in your head. It's what's in your heart. And so for me as an anti-racist psychotherapist, anti-racism is a bit beyond that idea of knowledge acquisition. Anti-racism is about talking about the structure that we find ourselves in. And I kind of feel that race is one of the uh, the primary ways of organizing our experience as you are an American and as I am as a Canadian. It's like, the thing is that um, when a person is going to say that someone is a black therapist or a black doctor, it's like immediately that it just changes the idea of whether they are professional or not, just by the virtue of a color. And when a person is going to then talk about the experiences of what it means to be a black man or a black woman it's like as if it, it it just changes so much from our conceptualization when we just say a man or a woman and the yeah. fascinating thing is that when we say a man or a woman we are referring to the default is that people will think it's a white man or uh or a white female despite the fact that white people are a minority in the world yeah. And when I was growing up and they were like, you know, I'm a racial minority. But then you go to these different countries and you realize there's a lot of dark skinned people in the world. So it's yeah. like these ideas of who is the majority and minority. And even when we use these terms of the dominant uh, culture, what is mm -hmm. the opposite of the dominant culture? It's the subservient or, you know, the yeah. subordinate. And we use the terms dominant culture because it's pleasing to the ear and to the ego of white people. Because we can't yeah. really say instead that it's the oppressing culture because it technically is and that other people who have less power are oppressed by them because then, you know, that makes people feel, uh, uh, they don't feel good when they hear that. So, so well, anti-racist psychotherapy. Well, in that not feeling, oh, sorry. 
Yeah, so anti-racist psychotherapy is really to bring the unconscious conscious. It is, it's uncomfortable, even the name of like, I'm going to have to talk about racism. This is hard. I don't want to talk about racism. This is challenging. (laughs) But the interesting thing is that as a therapist, it is our job to bring the unconscious to the conscious level and to process it adequately. So that's why up front and center, we have to understand that the sociopolitical circumstances that the client finds themselves in is almost as important as the family that they find themselves in is almost as important as the trauma that they themselves carry because depending on your social identity you are more likely to have certain types of trauma history items than if you came from a different identity yeah well yeah the the posture of you know even just the dominant culture as a as a construct you talk about, you know, if you changed it to the oppressing culture or the oppressive culture, that does bring up a large degree of activation in, in people, which then drives them to either change it or deny it and thus dissociate it away. And so for it to be called a, you know, oppressive culture, that would either, you know, raise up those two kind of responses in my mind. That, and we kind of talked about that binary that binary um, reality. Complex trauma cycle. Yeah. Yes. Yes. When there is, you know, a identified pole of you are this, there's going to be the opposite side of that, that as well. And I didn't know um, if you could speak to that a little bit, the, the specifically that uh, binary. Yeah, sure. It's, it's kind of like, um, well, uh, the thing is that um, you see it in your country and I see it in my province, is uh, people don't like CRT. They don't like critical race (laughs) theory. They don't like that because, you know, then you're talking about the past in a way that's that's honest. No, you shouldn't be doing that. (laughs) Why are are we bringing up the past? We should look towards the future. Uh, You know, we got some clients, too, that are in a state uh, of, uh, you know, of denial. And they're like, no, there's no problems here. Why are you bringing up problems? Why are you telling us that there's a problem in our society? You're trying to say that everybody's racist. You're trying to say everybody's bad. It's like, it's, it's this fascinating to me? Yeah. Um, uh, because the thing is that the first, the, the first victim of racism is white people. And mo- many people don't even know this. They don't even uh, stop to think of it. But trauma always comes from somewhere. So uh, when I talk about the binary complex trauma cycle, is that on one end of the spectrum, you'll hear the idea of white supremacy. And we all know the, even just from the terms, you can tell that, uh, that by virtue of being white, uh, there is a system that is going to protect you and also is going to ensure absolute victory over anything else. This is the general idea of whiteness. as it, uh, And this is something that is, as we were talking about, is endemic. It's in our institutions, it's in our mm-hmm. psychotherapies. The APA recently apologized for their um, perspectives yeah. relating to race and racism uh, because it's so deep in all of our fields, these ideas of racism, because it's at the foundation. You could not have America without genocide against indigenous. You could not have America without uh, sex, sex trafficking, sexual violence, and repeated century-long trauma cycle of uh, the ma'afa, the black yeah. Uh, the violence against Black people. So in the creation of the country, then, is white supremacy. The opposite side is Black suffering. So 
we have this binary that without um, white people being, it's like you need to have that white people are completely in success and complete victory so that you then compare it with black people always being in abject poverty, that black people receive all of the projections that is too uh, uncomfortable for the white body to, to take. Yeah. So they will say that my ancestors were so lazy, despite the fact that they were worked to death, that they worked to the point of dying, but they're still lazy. And we will say that the black body is hypersexualized, despite the fact that in order for white enslavers to be able to generate more of their capitalist product, which was black labor. They would tell us that we were worth less, but we would generate their worth. Again, these, uh, these hypocrit uh, hypocritical yeah. statements. Contradictions, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's part of this whole psychological thing because it's all fake. So it's yeah. part of the privilege. So all of these, these ideas of like putting into the black body then validate the idea of black suffering. So then white supremacy through what I call soul murder, which is explained in the book, there's other uh, researchers who have used that term specifically, yeah, yeah. but it's to say that it's not just violence, it's violence to the point that you want, you want to damage the person at the deepest level. So when the violence goes into that, that black individual or that black construct, that validates whiteness. So because black people are losing, that means white people are winning. So then white people in a way through slave movies, through uh, just a whole bunch of terrible media and social media, they must demonstrate that Black people are going through trauma so that they don't have to cope with theirs. This is why white people are the first victims of, of anti-Black racism, because at the time when you constructed whiteness and Blackness, they happened at the same time. And the difficulty of saying that we got to talk about critical race theory is that we have to use our memory faculties. <laughs> the difficulty is that we have to acknowledge that maybe black people existed for white people is that we have to think that beyond the American imagination that the black person is only relevant in history when white people become involved is to know that these pyramids have existed for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. I think the Sphinx was created in like, earlier than 10,000 BC. BC, yeah. Okay. That's not built from Ikea. Okay. That's yeah, not, right. that's not. <laughs> you can't order that on Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not, that's not Amazon. So the thing is that it becomes a little inconvenient when we start to think, well, who, if black people are not just enslaved people, who were they before? Who were white people before this? And so then instead we must disconnect and we must dissociate from the past. We must yeah. maintain this idea that the trauma of the past, of who we thought we were and what we did in the past must be completely forgotten. And we must only look towards the present and especially towards the future. Yeah. When we have clients who, uh, who have such trauma in their early upbringing, they usually are going to have certain types of symptoms. And so this is why I kind of look at when I talk about anti-racist psychotherapy, it's because Ultimately, it's our countries, ultimately, it's our societies, too, that sometimes are even more traumatized than the clients who uh, present themselves in our offices. Yes, yes. Um, you mentioned the dissociating our history, our past, our beginnings, our origins. 
um, in that we, you know, we spoke before the podcast about a, you know, what are some of the consequences for therapy if our origin as people of the United States or people of Canada or, you know, it just anyone in general is based in that dissociative origin, what, you know, is to be done in therapy? What, what really are we doing? Because that question I feel gets at the, the complete reason for an anti-racist psychotherapeutic approach. Mm. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I think there's like plenty of reasons for why it'd be a good idea to have an anti-racist psychotherapy. I also think that I'm not the first person who's written about this. That's very important for people to know, even Frantz Fanon. I mean, he was speaking about internalized oppression long before you saw it in many textbooks. Mm. Um, but the the danger is, look, the danger is not necessarily, it's more of like a, uh, it's like a long-term danger because short-term, mm. What it does is it allows for whiteness to go unchallenged and to just have white supremacy flourish and that most of the therapists you're going to see are going to be white people. Most of the professors you see will be white people and all of those. It's just the problem is that, um, you know, there's things like math so that the population's demographics are going to change. <laughs> like <Yeah>. eventually <laughs> we need to make it so that we are starting to think about a therapy from a lens that takes into account the identity of the client. Like, for me, that, that seems a little obvious, but at the same time is that uh, it is uncomfortable. It's, it's really, it's uncomfortable for us to, to think that we might have been kind of shooting ourselves in the foot by preventing certain types of people to have certain positions. It might be a little uncomfortable of just thinking like, was a lot of like, even like voting rights and like, you know, even yeah. like poverty is a lot of this just based on just preserving this terrible dichotomy, this terrible comparison between white and black and racism. Are some of our drugs just scheduled drugs just because of racism? Like there's a lot of things that like if we really confront with that, uh, if we really uh, contend with that, uh, then there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And so yeah. if like it's much easier for us to just forget about it. It's much easier for us to just sweep it under the rug. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's the American and Canadian way, you know, That's right. <laughs> it's, it's part of, it's part of what, what we do. Uh, I think I saw a study recently uh, that was saying that Canada has administered more third doses to its population than it donated to uh, countries that were in need. And that is so fascinating to me because again, it's this idea of self-preservation that takes place. Yeah. Yeah. So the danger is that if we don't think about our countries in these ways, if we don't think about our therapy in these ways, then we will continue with these short-sighted perspectives on advancing individual interests over uh, collective interests. We can't necessarily say that, uh, that this is the highest point of evolution because we have billionaires who fly uh, spaceships into the, you know, at the expense of everyone else. We need to start to think of how we can love ourselves a bit more and how we can love each other a, a bit, a bit deeper and how we can care for our fellow, our fellow humans. That's kind yeah. of how I look at it. Yes. I so appreciate that posture. And I, you know, we talked again before the episode about the, the consequences of a disorganized attachment style from a from a societal perspective and how in that egocentric 
um, safety, you know, defense mechanism, we find a, you know, just pushing away of the, the very thing that we need the most to heal because we believe that it itself will only hurt us more. You know, this, this idea of community and a, you know, focus on the other instead of just myself that works if we can trust the other. But when we believe we can't, we will continue to self-preserve, self-protect, attack, push away, get bigger stakes for what's mine versus what is someone else's. And it's this zero-sum game. You got it, 100%. I think our countries are not necessarily at a state of secure attachment. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I definitely agree. We're always on the brink of war. We're always like, no, no immigrants. It's like, oh, you guys are immigrants. It's like, come on, yeah. enough, enough <laughs> of this madness now. So the thing is, I think, though, is that um, uh, if our clients themselves go through these difficult thoughts and these difficult experiences, and we are able to help to reprocess their suffering with EMDR, I believe that there's also some hope for our countries as well. I think that that it's possible that there's like, if we just follow like some of the principles of EMDR, that there may even be a form of memory reconsolidation for our countries. There may be a way of healing. Yeah. Uh, it, may, it may come about in a way that is unexpected because that's the nature of humans that we have this infinite creativity and the mm-hmm. solution doesn't always look like the problem. But uh, the reason why I do these types of things is because uh, I've seen people heal. And so since I think a lot of times in our trauma-informed discussions, we don't always talk enough about vicarious growth. Mm-hmm. And it's very important for, for people to know that, um, you know, it's, it changes us. I think in the same way how you're talking about uh, this client hugging Pluto, I'm yeah. talking about the client, uh, you know, hugging the, the bunny rabbit. Uh, what is it that, that happens to the therapist who witnesses this? And I think that it inspires hope. Yeah. So as much as it is that you're going to hear, hear me talk about anti-racist psychotherapy, um, and that I'm going to talk about complex trauma, eating disorders, uh, you know, substance abuse. Um, it's like whenever I talk about those situations, I also think about like the lives that we as a therapeutic community have helped mm-hmm. to save that we as a community of humans have helped to say that of course there is, there are terrible things in the world, but it's balance. There's always this balance between one force versus another force. And so sometimes I'll speak to a client and we'll say like, you know, they'll tell me that they're broken and then I'll have to remind them that there's no such thing as a broken person. It's like um, people are healing every single day. Sometimes yeah. they're, they're like, every single day, I'll say, yeah, every single day. And we need to provide the memory reconsolidation, disconfirming right. knowledge and disconfirming evidence to just to help people to, to just know that there's a different way. There's a way that that works and that everyone deserves a second chance. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I so appreciate that. Um, you know, looking at the time here, I wanted to make sure we save some time to talk about uh, some of the the writing that you've done um, and, and to really kind of maybe for the listener as well, talk about um, each of your books and, and maybe what they could uh, expect or desire from those books um, as they as they have the option to purchase them. Cool. Um, yeah. Highly recommended. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
recommend that if some of these thoughts have been helpful that you may be interested in these books. Which one would you like to start with? Well, I, I, I like starting with the idea that they are written for a bit of a different audience. Each of them is, is perhaps one is much more focused on the therapeutic community and the, the research community, whereas the other is focused for the person and, and really getting back to a sense of, of connection with their body and their mind. And so maybe we can talk about them from that distinction that, sure. yeah, so. Okay, so the first book is called Anti-Racist Psychotherapy, Confronting Systemic Racism and Healing Racial Trauma. And this is a book that is designed to just explain the foundations behind anti-racist psychotherapy, the need for an anti-racist psychotherapy, as well as talking about some of the neurobiological consequences of racism and the systemic, uh, just the systemic uh, violence that takes place in our societies. Even though I told uh, Bridger before, uh, that's why I heard you laugh earlier, is that even though I'm a Canadian, it's like uh, as Canadians, we watch a lot of Amer- American news. Sometimes yeah. our Canadian news is a, a little boring. But, uh, so we're... <laughs> Uh, the, but the interesting thing is that we watch your news because a lot of it relates to our uh, society as well. So there's common things that might be of interest to either the North American, I'm sure even some Europeans. I have a few people, a few podcasts I've done in Europe as well. Mm-hmm. So it's really just to say that anti-racist psychotherapy explains um, racism from a trauma-informed lens and also mm-hmm. an EMDR therapy perspective. So reading the book also allows for you to get 12 continuing education credits from MGIA because mm. it's EMDR. It's just that it's from uh, like an idea of how do we recontextualize and reprocess the past as well. Yes. And is that um, able to be purchased third party? The book is, but then you also have your course on your website. Is that how they would register for the, the MGIA credits? Exactly. Like on my website, there's also like podcast, archertherapy.com. There's podcasts, there's like um, courses that I've done, there's presentations I've done at Emdria and all of this stuff. So um, yeah, if you go on at uh, uh, archertherapy.com, you'll be able to get links for this book and also for uh, the other as well. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so the other book then, Black Meditation, um, is focused much more for the, the, the person. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So Black Meditation, 10 Practices for Self-Care, Mindfulness, and Self-Determination. This is uh, more for the Black client that I was unable to reach or that is outside of my reach. Um, In Because I spoke a bit about the systemic racism in psychotherapy, it's that there's also like a taboo about receiving mental health services from white Mm -hmm. therapists that could be racist you never know they could have certain flags in their office when yeah (laughs) as a black person who has went to receive mental health services sometimes you got to ask these questions of like yeah going to be safe in in the office if i if i go in and if i talk about these things so ultimately is that i think that uh, black meditation was just to introduce the idea that for the black person to break out of the cycle of the black suffering and to understand that their blackness is a superpower. It's for them to understand that through that, that meditation is not something outside of our culture, that caring for ourselves, loving ourselves is not outside of our culture. And that mindfulness is something that 
that may have originated around the time of the Nubian uh, dynasties, the Kemetic mm -hmm. uh, dynasties and all of that. So it's really to move past this idea that we just only came into the picture from slavery, that we existed for thousands of years before these, uh, yeah. these countries, these nation states uh, even came into, into play in the first place. Black meditation is more of like an accompanying text for the black client that is looking for resources, meditations, writing exercises, visualizations, and ultimately it's to decolonize the mental health. Mm -hmm. is to make it so that the black person through their own community is able to recognize uh, that they that they have inherent values uh, and like uh, abilities that can help them to recover uh, from the traumas of, uh, of racism. Yeah. Um, with your focus also being on, um, you know, the indigenous populations and LGBTQ plus, um, do you see some of that? being applicable there as well um, from the meditation perspective um, or is it kind of centered pretty pretty much on the as you said the, the black person that you can't reach or that is out of your reach yeah so the thing is that uh, when i talk about the binary complex trauma cycle and i talk about black and white just to know that these are constructs yeah so uh, i presented at mgr in november talking about how sometimes you can replace the aspect of black suffering with female submission, and you can replace the aspect of white supremacy with male domination. And the same type of activity takes place. Even yeah. if we are to say the, uh, the violence that takes place towards sexual minorities or LGBTQ community versus the heteronormative perspective, the same yeah. types of things will take place. Black meditation is meant to be explicitly that I am. I let people know I'm black. I let the audience know that I'm speaking from a black perspective, but it's definitely for people who are interested in what I'm talking about. You're still going to be able to find uh, uh, an advantage. Yeah, and that's really what I wanted to point out was that in the binary um, complex trauma cycle that you talk about, that there is this ability to observe other relationships in the world that are playing out that same relationship just as just as you mentioned you can change the the players of the game quote unquote um, but those dynamics are really what you're illustrating with the with with the cycle yeah yes one of i remember i there was someone who gave me some feedback they're from ethiopia and they read anti-racist psychotherapy and, they, and even though they may appear as being black to a North American, because we look at things in terms of this binary that you have one drop, you're black and all this stuff. For them, they said that the idea of race, it didn't seem to affect them as much, but it's still related to their ethnic categorizations and like the different cultures and communities that are there. So even if you are not specifically a black Jamaican, African Canadian, I still think you can benefit from being able to read anti-racist psychotherapy, confronting systemic racism and healing racial trauma, as well as black meditation, 10 practices for self-care, mindfulness, and self-determination. Yeah, and, you know, like, it's, it's, it's part of it. I mean, I mean, like these are heavy topics. I like to add a little bit of humor in these books. I also like to, yeah. uh, but just to point people towards that direction, knowing that we can recover, that, we, that we're beautiful. There's hope, yeah. Yes, there is hope. Well, Archer, uh, 
sorry, David. Um, I, I have a good I have a good friend who's named Archer, and so it's hard for me to like. Yeah, it's a great name. Yes, I think my yes. parents they had good taste. I like the name. Good taste. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you so much um, for your time. And I will, uh, you know, we'll have the uh, URL for your website, as well as some links to uh, your books in the show notes uh, to this episode. And uh, is there anything left that you'd like to, to send off for our listeners? Well, all I want to say is thank you again for the work that you're doing of being able yeah. to, to make like these discussions like accessible and also um, for anyone who's listening, I say it uh, all the time. I just want people to just know that that uh, that we are beautiful people. That every even if we come from different races, we all come have a common ancestor. Okay, yeah. we're all cousins, all of us, and so we have to just cultivate that love in ourselves. Just knowing that anyone who is listening, your life has value. That you are a person that may have been through some difficulties, but just knowing that we're all on this path and. Uh, mm-hmm. I just wish all the best to everyone, that everyone can just stay healthy and just uh, and just to, to be well. Yes. Amen. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful <laughs> send-off. Yes, I really do. That's wonderful. Um, well, thank you all for listening to this episode. And, and I hope, as well as just David communicated, that, that this finds you in a place of openness um, and curiosity about yourself and the, and the people that you work with. And that we can bring these things together to think more intentionally about how we're encountering one another and in that invitation to safety, find healing. Um, Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media, a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt, but are learning to recover and grow, living the life we all want of safety and connection. The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear. The Evidence-Based Therapist is an educational podcast where we read so you don't have to. On this podcast, we discuss seminal, recent, and relevant research on psychotherapeutics and the embodied relational sciences. How do we know what is evidence-based and how do we use it in our practice? You'll find out on the EBT podcast.